you hire an accountant. Yeah, I'm, I'm an accountant. I will do the books, right? But you hire someone that is familiar with that kind of tax situation in order to make sure that those K-1s are correct for your, your partners who are investing with you in your fund. You know, essentially you're creating a small business and uh, investing that small business funds into these operators. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Mark Sira, and today we're talking about making the shift as a busy professional, making the shift from active real estate investing to passive real estate investing. We're talking about Mark's journey in, in making that transition. I know there are a lot of you out there who are thinking about that and you're already active real estate investors or, or hey, you're thinking about becoming an active real estate investor, but you're thinking, man, I, I don't know if I have the time for this stuff. Well, hey, Mark did it. He started as an active real estate investor and, and eventually gradually made the transition to an, a passive real estate investor. And he learned the downsides of active real estate investing as a busy professional. Let's face it, you have a focus already. You have a way that you make money and you have a way that you build wealth and you can build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. And that's what this podcast, that's what this show, but that, that's what this episode and that's what this show more broadly is really about is managing your time, realizing that, hey, maybe I shouldn't be an active real estate investor and maybe I need to make that, that transition to passive real estate investing. Well, Mark did it. And today he's gonna teach you about his journey of becoming an active real estate investor and then making that shift to passive real estate investing, why he did it, and what he's gained by becoming a passive real estate investor while he's a, a C-suite executive. We didn't even, I mentioned that so far, right? We talked about that in the show a little bit, but he's got a, a job that keeps him busy, right? I know a lot of you out there do as well, and maybe you can relate to Mark and that transition that he made. He's also uh, just telling us, he's teaching us about what he's working on right now that's helping busy professional real estate investors invest in private real estate, but diversify as well. And he makes a good point, investing in real estate passively. Each deal, if you're investing in syndications, for example, hey, you might need $50,000 per deal, $100,000 per deal. If you want diversification, you want to get into 10, 15 deals. Hey, now we're talking maybe in the millions of dollars worth of equity invested, whereas there are options out there to diversify your investment in real estate without plunking down a million or a million and a half, $2 million to get into multiple deals, multiple markets. So we're, he's going to teach us about what he's working on in that area and uh, so much more. A lot of lessons to be learned in this one. I know you're going to enjoy from learning about Mark's journey, his lessons, and what he's working on today. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor. I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing in one of our future real estate deals, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and take the steps from there. I look forward to connecting with you on a call from that. If you're an Apple podcast user and you enjoy the show, please do take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much, you guys. I'm not just saying that. I really mean it. I really appreciate that because that, that helps the show grow. That helps us rank higher in the Apple podcast ecosystem. That helps more people listen to these lessons and escape the Wall Street casino. And I'm always honest with you guys. I say this every episode that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you out there listening right now, that I get to see that you're learning these lessons and you're escaping the Wall Street casino. And that's what this is all about, you guys. It's all about spreading this knowledge and spreading the passive real estate investing message. 
no matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, do take a moment, look us up, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I want to thank you guys for tuning in. You're going to learn so much from our guest, Mark Sierra. Without any further ado, here we go. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Super excited to be here. Thanks, Taylor. Well, hey, we've been all talking for almost an hour already, and you have so many interesting experiences and, and your journey uh, in real estate, I think will really resonate with a lot of our listeners today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do? And then let's start back at the beginning of when you started investing in real estate as well. Sure. I'll kind of give a little bit of background. I graduated in 2002 with an accounting degree from Iowa State, and I went out into the consulting world and I worked at a variety of firms from Ernst & Young and Navigant Consulting and a, and a couple other smaller firms and really got introduced to real estate about halfway through my career in 2010 through my wife. We got married and we purchased some land that we were going to build our own house on. Turned out we decided not to build on that piece of land, but instead uh, decided to develop it. And my wife is a general contractor here in Chicago. So she was kind of already familiar with the business, not necessarily in investing, but as a contractor, right? She had the experience to be able to say, hey, you know, we're not going to build this home, but let's build some spec homes and sell them, you know? And, and that really just turned the light on for me. We developed those properties and sold them in, I think, around 2013. And then we just kept doing that a, a couple more times. And we still do that today. That's an active business that we're involved in. Uh, and she does a lot of that work as the general contractor and developer. And really, the light turned on when I thought, hey, I have extra money coming out of my consulting career and we can invest that in real estate. And so we started doing that actively as developers and we did several single family homes and we do condos now. Um, but as my career was really taken off towards the middle uh, 2015 area, um, I became the CFO of, of a, one of the clients I was working for, um, brought on you know, as part of that company to help it grow. And I realized that the active part of the business was just, it was too much work to have both an active role in real estate uh, and, you know, continue on successfully in a career. So I had to make some decisions. We looked very, very hard at uh, passive investing. I did a lot of research in 2016. We made our first investments in passive real estate um, apartment syndications and mobile home parks, self-storage in 2016, 2017. And at the same time, we were considering you know, parallel path, can we do anything like becoming a syndicator? Uh, and I partnered up with several people to explore some mobile home park investing. And we purchased several mobile home parks. Of course, I did a lot of the financials and that sort of thing. So we were sort of parallel pathing, trying to figure out whether the career was going to take off as the company grew, whether we wanted to exit and become syndicators uh, from, you know, exit from the day job and become syndicators in mobile home parks or apartments or something like that. Uh, or continue on in, in passive investing. And, you know, as the career continued to progress and get busier and the company grew, I became, you know, busier in the day job and realized that the active side was just a lot more work and a lot more uh, effort than I was prepared or, or even the partners were prepared to take on when we had successful careers, right? So we really came full circle and have decided to come back to the passive world and target diversification with strong operators that have been in the business for a long time and have great track records. And really, you know, taking a lot of the excess capital that we've built in our own day jobs as professionals and putting that back into passive real estate to hopefully build that stream of income 
over the long term and and have the option to exit, you know, maybe early, maybe not, but you know, having the income there in place when we want to take advantage of it. Nice. Nice. I love that. Great, great summary. So I want to dig in and, and hopefully this is not uh, twisting the knife too much or anything like that, but I want to dig into some of that pain of being an active real estate investor and some lessons that you learned there, because I, I've spoken with you know, some of our listeners out there who are active real estate investors now, or they're thinking about going that route and, and kind of deciding whether that's right or, or a more passive role. So before they you know, go out and dive into active real estate investing while having, you know, a high earning day job. Tell us about your experiences there. And and I don't know, some of the tough times that made you sure. reconsider that decision. Sure. So like I mentioned, we we were doing active development and building homes and, and my wife was spearheading most of that. At the same time, we did some flips, right? So we I was doing a lot of research on uh, you know, the MLS tra- trying to work with brokers and find deals that that made sense. And that takes a lot of time, right? Spending nights and weekends, uh, you know, digging through the MLS, sending out letters to property owners, all of that sort of thing. And there were good, good returns and some projects that you you just find things behind the walls you don't expect. So, you know, you realize that that's also an active business, not only just active in your time, but it's not a long-term real estate. You don't get capital gains preference on your income from flipping home. So we put that kind of together and thought, well, that's probably not the right move. A, it's too risky and B, you know, it takes a ton of work. So we have stuck with, as far as um, the active role, stuck with developing ground up homes or, or condos and that sort of thing. Cause it just, it's, it's easy to plug and play and continue on when you know, you know, there's nothing behind the walls. You just got to build it. So that's a lot easier. That's one thing that we learned in the active space. Now around like mobile home parks and becoming a syndicator, you know, I went, uh, I, I got a mentor and I did, you know, a lot of the things that the syndicated mentors will teach you about how to become an active uh, operator or syndicator, you know, went through the classes, went out and, and met brokers in out in the field. You know, I've walked many apartment buildings, you know, and, and just realized around that 2017, 2018 time period, how difficult it can be to break in to, to really get those quality assets. You've got to be willing to put in a lot of legwork over a long period of time with many of those, those brokers, you know, and not only just to find the deal, but to close the deal from investor aspect, as well as banking relationships, you know, all of the things, insurance. So you're really buying yourself a new job when you want to become a syndicator. So for me, I didn't really want to give up my day job. I wanted to find a great way to invest in real estate. And I realized that the day job could give me the opportunity to invest in real estate without being active in the day-to-day operations of the syndication um, by investing with great operators. So that's that's sort of the, the lesson that I learned was that time is um, very valuable and it takes a lot of it to, to build that new business and the relationships and all of that. And if you're not um, ready to make that move or you're comfortable in your day job, there may be a better alternative. Yeah. I think a lot of folks, I'm I'm glad you mentioned uh, working with brokers in particular, a lot of folks kind of really underestimate how difficult it is to, to really build those relationships. So you start getting, you know, at least getting access to the actual deals rather than the stuff that they've had that nobody else has bought for one reason or another. That's a lot of work. It's not something that you're just going to make one phone call and 
suddenly have a, a great deal in your email inbox. That's right. You know, you're most likely not even going to see the see the good deals, right? Yeah. Uh, they don't believe that you're going to be able to close, that you will close, you know, that you might back out uh, and waste their time. I mean, until you've proven your track record, you know, it's very hard to break into, I would call it a hundred plus unit apartment complex world where the syndicators are really operating. Absolutely. Absolutely true. So now let's, let's get into that shift into passive syndication investing and, and more passive investing that you've made. Tell us about that, that first kind of getting started, those first couple investments, what you looked for, how they went, all that. Yeah. So the first couple of investments, you know, I was, I was fresh and new to the industry. So I was very excited about making investments in apartments and, and hot markets. So much of them were in Texas, Dallas, and specific, you know, specifically, uh, continues to be a great market. But a lot of times I, I feel like new investors who get involved in syndications, uh, they're looking at the first opportunity and it's hard to pass it up, right? You just mm -hmm. want to get involved. Luckily, I made good decisions. Uh, but looking back, I realized you can jump in too quickly and, and be in bed with the wrong operators for sure. It's very easy to do. There's a lot of them out there that um, maybe just don't have the track record or experience. And, you know, they're more than willing to invest your money. Um, that's usually not a problem. Luckily, I, I got involved with good operators because I spent a long time just listening to podcasts, going to conventions, uh, meeting people, looking at their track records was the biggest part. And that is where I continue to focus my attention on due diligence is with the sponsors uh, and really verifying you know, how good are these guys? How long have they been in the market? Have they seen ups, ups and downs? Have they been able to, you know, survive a, a crisis or, you know, did they, did they navigate 2008? Well, you know, many operators out today, um, they weren't even around then. So, you know, they've been really doing well because the market's done well since 2008, 9, 10. I mean, if you entered the market since then, um, you're really doing, you're on the back of the market. Uh, your performances. And so looking back at that track record in history was the defining characteristic for me back then and continues to be today. Interesting. So it almost sounds like if I'm, if I'm getting it right, um, you're not investing with anyone that started after the great recession and only looking at folks that were, you know, pre great recession investing. Is that right? Well, not necessarily. I think that ideally that would be the case. You'd want to be you know, looking at 20 or 30 year companies that have been around, they've got these relationships that, that go back for a long time, but that's not always the case. There are young operators that, you know, maybe they've been around for five, six, 10 years or something, and they've done, you know, a hundred, 200 deals, and they're really doing well. I mean, you can look at those track records and, and find the couple of assets that maybe they had troubles on. You can ask questions. Hey, why did, why did this one not meet your initial underwriting or your projections. Um, why, why did you choose this asset when all these other assets did well? What was different? And how did you react to that? You know, you don't want to just talk about the wins. You want to talk about what went wrong and how they reacted and, and what did they do with their investors? How did they treat them? I wouldn't say you, you'd necessarily have to only invest with people who have been around for 30 years, but um, I think the, the diligence gets a little bit stronger, the shorter the track record someone has. That's true. That's a good point. I wonder how you, how do you get that information uh, from the sponsor about those properties and, and what kind of answers do you usually get back? 
you know, it's, it's oftentimes some pulling teeth, right? Especially, <laughs> you know, it really depends. And that's a key, that's a key point. Uh, many operators will point that out. Hey, here's, here's the hundred properties that we've, that we've owned over the last 10 years or whatever it is. These are the three that didn't go well and here are the returns and Hey, here's why. If somebody offers you that right out of the gate, I mean, that's a pretty good sign that this, this is a good operator that's going to communicate well and tell you about the problems when they have them as opposed to try, you know, trying to brush that under the rug. So if you ask that question and you have to really pull it out of them, then you probably, you probably don't want to invest with that. Operator. <laughs> you know, cause they're not going to tell you when it's going wrong and they're not going to be forthcoming when they get into trouble and you want to at least know, Hey, they've got this under control. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And there's a lot of confidence on their part in, in putting that out there in the first place. You know, they're, they're having confidence that, Hey, we're giving you this information because, you know, we mitigated in this way. We know you're going to understand that any investor is going to have problems over the life of a, an investing career. Some things aren't going to go the way they were planned. And the ones that, that really perform well in, in the long term acknowledge the things that went wrong and fix them. Yeah. The one thing you can tell about every underwritten model is that it will be wrong. <laughs> no true. business plan operates uh, according to plan to perfection, right? So they're they're going to change. Um, you can probably ask what changed on every deal, even the great ones. You know, they probably didn't underwrite a forty percent return on some of the the really home run projects. But hey, why did the market turn so favorable for you? And did you know it was coming, or did you just happen? to be there in the right spot at the right time. So um, those are, you know, those are key questions. Um, you don't necessarily just have to look at the negatives, ask, ask why the positives were so great. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I appreciate, you know, uh, a CFO, an accountant telling us that the, the math does not necessarily always reflect reality. So I, as an engineer, I appreciate that acknowledgement. We love the applied stuff, but you know, something I, I really want to ask about that while we're on the topic of underwriting is, you know, I've seen sponsors, uh, big and small, make math errors in their underwriting, not just the, not talk about the assumptions, but saying, Hey, this formula is wrong and it's giving you an IRR of whatever. I'm not saying a figure, but when I redo your sheet and get the formula right, the IRR I come up with is, eh, Four points lower, four percent, four hundred basis points lower. Do you run across that at all? Do you see that very often? And and how quickly do you run for the hills whenever you uh, see such a mistake? <laughs> I mean that that's a that's a pretty fundamental dis- mistake. I mean, if, <laughs> if they don't have somebody check in, you know, the formulas, or or if they're you know inexperienced underwriter, you know, accidentally copied a, a formula wrong. I mean, um, there's got to be checks in those models, oftentimes you're not going to get the model from an operator. Some of them will hold it pretty close to their True. chest. Yeah. Um, and you may only get, a, a, you know, an image of the model and you may have to back calculate some of that stuff yourself. You know, sometimes people just make mistakes though, right? I've made models that have mistakes in them go back and look at it. And, hey, you know what? I copied that wrong as well. So you can ask the question and, and if it, you can usually tell if it was intentional manipulation. I would be more concerned about some of the assumptions driving the model, as opposed to just, you know, is the, are all the formulas, right? You know, you can, you can do a little, little mini audit on it as you're going through the underwriting, but um, you know, you really want to focus on those like rent growth assumptions. And, you know, if they, if they're projecting rent growth at 
6% and expense growth at 1%, um, <laughs> you know, you've got a disconnect there, right? Uh, most likely, unless it's like last year um, during COVID, which was an anomaly. But, um, you know, those are the types of fundamental things that you want to understand in the model. And, and a lot of places where it breaks down are like taxes, right? People underwrite taxes at last year's rate, but you just bought it for, you know, significantly more than the last person did. And uh, the county assessor is going to come and ask for a significantly larger amount of tax. And that's often missed in models. You know, insurance, same thing. Insurance is constantly uh, outpacing inflation, uh, in my experience. And that's often underwritten too, too small of a growth factor. So I think I would focus much more on those assumptions and underwriting. Well, those are both, uh, well, three of those, uh, rent growth and then taxes and insurance in particular, uh, those are, those are great ones to bring up. You know, insurance is, is one that I think, you know, states like Florida have seen huge increases because insurance companies are finally starting to figure out climate risk and underwrite that into their models and, and real estate investors are, are seeing that stuff, uh, happening and, and impacting their numbers. Absolutely. And it's not just you know, Florida because of hurricanes, it's, it's Florida's rates or Texas's insurance rates because there's wildfires in California as well, right? It's not a localized issue. That's the nature of insurance is to spread the risk around and everybody's risk is higher and the rates go up and reflect that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. So I want to make sure we leave plenty of time to talk about what you're working on now. You made this you know, transition from really active real estate investing. You said you're still, you know, doing some of these development deals. I, I assume your 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 wife is still a general contractor, but you've got another uh, initiative, I, I, if you will, uh, going on right now. You know, let's break into that and learn about uh, what you're up to these days, and then you know, for the next uh, years coming down the road. Sure, absolutely. So, like you said, I, I you know, I'm moving away from the active role as I'm a busy professional myself. Um, realizing that passive investment is really the place I'd like to be and the place that I'm putting my capital now. Uh, and I'd like to bring other people like myself, other busy professionals who, you know, maybe they're not ready to step away from their day job. Um, maybe they enjoy the people they work with, their coworkers or their work or, or whatever it is, um, but they've got a, a good W-2 income or they're a small business owner. Uh, and they don't want to create another business as a syndicator, uh, but they'd like to have exposure to you know, real estate in the private industry, right? So that's really what we're trying to do. What I realized is that diversification in this in this industry is very important. Uh, as I talked about earlier, I I was very concentrated in specific uh, areas, you know, multifamily in Dallas with one or two operators, right? That to me does not speak diversified portfolio. And unless you have um, you know probably seven figures to invest in real estate outside of your typical, you know, nest egg, whatever it is, 401k or IRAs, it's very hard to achieve diversification in syndications because you're putting out 25, 50,000 a pop. And really true diversification is probably going to, you know, you're going to need 10, 15, 20 investments in order to achieve that diversification. And that's a significant outlay that, that many people cannot achieve. So we're focusing on building a fund that will provide diversification with some of these operators that have been around for a very long time, 20 years, like we were talking about earlier, have seen some ups and downs, uh, are providing funds of assets, and we can pool investor capital uh, to approach those operators and create a fund of diverse 
operators, industries, segments, you know, with 20, 30, 40, 50 assets in one fund um, and really provide that diversification, which I believe provides a much longer term, better return than, you know, individual stock picking, basically, right? <laughs> or horse picking. Horse picking. Well, that's, that, that is absolutely uh, the goal. Now, one of the things I wonder about, you know, from your perspective, I'm, you know, I still do active investing on, you know, on my own. So I, I wonder about the operator side of the administration of that kind of a fund. Like, like how do you envision, I mean, you're, you're a C-suite executive, right? You know how to manage stuff, but how do you uh, kind of think about that and and think about, you know, making sure all these deals are getting adequately reported on. And then that reporting is all, you know, rolled up into your fund. And then there's a cash flow. And I assume there's probably depreciation that each deal is going to, you know, distribute maybe to investors. Tell us about, you know, how the logistics of running this type of a fund. Sure. Well, I mean, systems and processes and support networks are key, right? Finding the right professionals, for example, the last thing you talked about was depreciation and taxes, right? You hire an accountant. Yeah, I'm I'm an accountant. I will do the books, right? But you hire someone that is familiar with that kind of tax situation in order to make sure that those K-1s are correct for your, your partners who are investing with you in your fund. You know, essentially, you're creating a small business and uh, investing that small business funds into these operators. Part of the diligence on those operators to talk about the beginning of the fund versus, you know, the distribution of K-1s, you know, you want to look at how do those operators report? Do they provide you with detailed information about the assets as well as the performance of their funds? So that's a key criteria when I look at the operators. What kind of reporting package will they be sending me as the fund administrator? And how will I be able to turn that back around to my investors and provide them with adequate information about how those investments are performing? So, you know, those are just a couple of things. You know, you always have other help and support around you from assistance and, you know, things that can be taken off your plate that are more administrative, right? But there are many systems from checking accreditation standards or um, qualifications of your investors. And those things can be uh, done through services that are provided. Um, So it's not me looking at your tax return. It's a third party who says, yep, this person does meet the standards and therefore they are able to invest in your fund. So those are just a couple examples, but um, you really have to look at it as running a small business and and look at how you can um, utilize the resources around you to accomplish the fund administration. Now, some people also use third-party fund administrators who will take care of all of that stuff for a fee, of course. But that's not the route that I'm going because I have experience with uh, how this, how do these things work. I wonder how much of those third-party guys end up, you know, eating up your return, and then shoot, what if, what if they underperform and they don't, you know, get a K one, get their uh, documentation, their tax information out on time, and then, you know, you're 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 waiting, and of course, you're going to depend on the the operators to get the the K ones to you and all of that, um, but that's one of the things that I would you know worry about is is the cost, and then you still that just still gives you somebody to manage. Whereas if you can you know handle that, is that that seems like the appropriate way to go. But but how how you know e myth working in your business versus on your business is that I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, as you grow into you know, a massive fund, you're probably going to definitely want to do it yourself. Or, you know, there's, there's a, there's probably private equity firms that have all of the 
the third party management do it for them. I would say it's probably a business decision on the fund and how much uh, drag they create at that fund level from management, you know, fees and third party fees, uh, and whether they can do that, you know, more efficiently in house for the size that they are and hire their own employees and and manage that work themselves, or whether they believe that some third party can do it uh, more efficiently because that's all they do, uh, rather than uh, you know focus on uh, vetting operators and sponsors and managing you know upward that way you know there's there's different ways i guess is what i'm saying to think about how to manage the fund but um you know that's the way i've chosen that you've laid out there nice now i i want to ask i'm sure you're already getting this question from investors or if not i I think you probably will but you're comparing your fund to reits especially publicly traded reits um what are maybe a couple of reasons you can think to to go with the fund rather than you know a wreath that's out there? I can think of at least two, but I wonder you know what's on your mind. Well, REITs obviously very similar to the stock market, right? They're traded publicly, so they're going to go up and down, you know, in value, just like the stock market does. Not necessarily tied to the same returns that Apple is, or you know, the same business cycles that Apple is, but. Um, generally, they're more volatile, right? Mm-hmm. So the passive investments in private real estate have that advantage, that illiquidity premium sometimes that people talk about. Um, that's debated, you know, whether that exists or, or doesn't. Um, you know, you can do a lot of research on, on that. <laughs> I personally believe that it does exist. And I think there's some advantage to, you know, having your money in something that is that you're targeting for five or 10 years out that you're not thinking about every day you know, refreshing the the finance page. Hey, what's the value of my Google stock today? Um, because in reality, it doesn't really matter what it is today uh, if you're investing for the long term. Um, you know, that's one of the main benefits that I believe private real estate has is that long term perspective. You know, and the illiquidity portion of it gives you uh, some access to potentially outsized returns. I believe. No, I was just going to say I, I think illiquidity. Uh, compared to liquidity, illiquidity in the, the 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 mainstream corporate financial press, you know those those dirty dogs, is often oftentimes presented as illiquidity is a bad thing. Uh, illiquidity is always a bad thing. You always want to have liquid investments, and you know, liquidity in your portfolio is of course important. But in my opinion, illiquidity of a particular investment can actually be a huge advantage for I think the same reason you're saying is it it takes some of our psychology out of the equation and for you know for a, a specific example go and look at what happened historically to the prices of REITs right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic they all tanked and I know that because I bought one of them because it, I thought it was a freaking bargain whereas our our real estate holdings the, the apartments that we own the self-storage that we owned that just kept marching on upward. You know, there was a brief period where maybe financing got a little more difficult, but there were still people in the units, you know, paying to live there. There were still people paying to keep their crap in our, you know, our self-storage. And, and I think that's really, it's because we can't just flash sell our, our real estate. Why would we do that? Whereas if we're two clicks away from liquidating our entire equities portfolio and we're scared because the world is falling apart, then people do that. I mean, that's like a basic thing of investing is we we panic sell, right? Overreaction. Yeah. Illiquidity can prevent us from doing that. Right that's on. my Did, rant about you're, <laughs> illiquidity. You're, you're saving people from themselves in some respects. I mean, the same thing happens on 
you know, you look at 2007 and eight, like the reason that the, the market goes so, so far down is because so many people panic sell, like you just said. Um, and that was the time to be buying again. You, you listen to the corporate media. They were telling, they were telling you probably in 2010, when you guys were buying land, oh, why are you buying land? What are you doing? Whereas that was like the best time to be buying anything in real estate, but right. you turn on and it also, you know, the private market, it, it transacts much slower, mm -hmm. right? Um, so it gives the market time to breathe. That's part of the reason why you didn't see major collapses when everybody thought, yeah, for sure, real estate apartments are going to sink because no one's going to pay rent. Well, everybody had to kind of take a breath and wait and see what happened. And the market didn't adjust down like, like so many predicted um, for that reason, because it just took time for everybody to recalibrate. Hey, what's really happening? Wait a minute. Everybody's still paying rent. Okay. Maybe it's not so bad. And then here we are. And it turned out people wanted to upgrade and shoot the Fed ran the printers. So that only benefits the uh, uh, owners of, of real, you know, real valuable properties. Yeah. So inflation's great for real estate, right? Totally. Totally. We lock in low rates and then inflation is six or seven or 10%. Uh, well, that's good for us, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, so much great stuff going on. I appreciate you telling us all about how you got started in real estate and now moving on to uh, this current venture, helping people invest and diversify in private real estate. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called Ground Floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Mark, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show, are you ready? I'm ready. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? So I got to say it's the investments that save my time, right? Time is the most important thing. As mm -hmm. you get older, you definitely realize that you're not getting any more of that. You can always make more. <laughs> you make more money, you can't make more time. So things that save my time, passive investing is one of those things. It, it creates money that I don't have to work an hourly job for, right? Or salary job or whatever. So anything that saves my time, you know, hiring, cleaning, I don't change my own oil, you know, those sorts of things that save my time where I can trade off, you know, hours of, of free time versus paid stuff. So there you go. 
Absolutely. I only recently started doing this actually, but if you start valuing your time mentally, put a dollar figure on it, if that helps with numbers, value it at a hundred or 500 or a thousand dollars an hour, you're going to say no to a lot more stuff that maybe you don't really want to do anyway, but wouldn't be a great use of your time. That it's, that's helped me a lot and and I get more time back. So yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, that's, I run a consulting firm and have been in consulting my whole life. So I'm, you know, you don't want to be a slave to the hourly bill rate. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I love that. So we have the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? So on the flip side of that coin, I've been involved in a couple of partnerships that have sucked up far more time than the value <laughs> of the investment <laughs> in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, a specific example, I had a acquaintance that had a large office building here in Chicago that was going through, um, you know, kind of an, it was an older building. It's being renovated to change it from more of an industrial use to an office space, more mixed office use. And, uh, you know, they were, they were getting older and they were looking for someone to help them, you know, take over the operations of that business and eventually get equity in it. And so essentially I offered up my time to help manage that building for nearly a year. But when it, you know, when I came time to make the equity uh, and draw up the papers, it did not work out. So the investment of time, you know, even though there was a lot of trust gained in that year and between both parties, uh, fundamentally, we were not close, even though we had talked, you know, many times about the price and, and how it would operate over that year when it was written down on the piece of paper. It's hard to tell what people will do. And that was a, a lot of time sunk into a, a, an investment that didn't work out. How would you mitigate that? Maybe get the get it in writing first. I, I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's very hard because you're kind of navigating a ground of trust and and trying to build up that trust that hey, you know, we're going to be long term partners here. Um, I'm going to run the business, and you know, you're going. I'm going to give my time, and you're going to give me some equity. And you know, building that uh, up front and and really nailing that deal is pretty hard to do before you really get to know somebody. So I'm not sure what the lesson is there. Um, there's many lessons probably, but <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I think the, I guess what I'm getting at is if you were to rewind time, would you try to get it in writing or would that have just killed the thing in the first place? And, and you feel you're, it sounds like maybe you feel you're better off for having learned that lesson the hard way rather than negotiate it, try to negotiate something in writing up front, not to be able to come to an agreement and then not do it at all. Right. It sounds yeah. like the, the writing agreement wouldn't have happened in the first place. Yeah, it was worth it was worth the risk. It 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 would not have depending on the person, maybe you could get the written agreement up front. Like here's here's the letter of intent that you know we're going to sign in a year or two if we build the trust. But you know, in this case, that was clear that that probably wasn't going to be mm-hmm. signed because that's you know, it would have been off-putting to this person. So there are, you know, maybe, maybe we could have talked more specifically in the early stages about the value of the property and the value of my equity and and how the structure of the company and investment um, of time for that value would be returned. But it just, uh, it didn't evolve that way, right? And I think I probably would try to get a little bit more specificity Mm -hmm. up front, but, you know, lesson learned. Okay, there you go. And we're still here, so it's all good. Yeah, and, you know, I learned a lot. It was just... It just cost a lot of time. (laughs) My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? So 
be selective, right? I think um, not only in your passive investments, but your active investments, your partners. I think it's prudent to go slow and learn from people who are more experienced from you, whether it's getting a mentor or finding people at, at meetups, you know, offering your time, seeing how you can help, you know, but but jumping at the first thing or following trends, uh, you know, acting too quickly, those are poor decision making, you know, probably gonna end up in bad decisions uh, and some poor outcomes. So, you know, taking your time, being selective and focusing on the long term, and I think really diversification in your assets in your portfolio, um, thinking like thinking like a long-term uh, large portfolio manager of, you know, like a Yale University endowment. Those guys are not thinking about tomorrow. They're thinking about 30, 40, 50, 100 years from now. Uh, and that's really, I think, the key to being a good investor. Nice. Nice. Love that. Well, Mark, thank you for joining us today. It's been great talking with you and learning from you. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you or, or anything like that, where can they track you down? You can go out to our website, uh, CiraCapitalGroup.com, C-I-R-A, Capital Group. And right there, you can uh, download a white paper that we have on diversification with private equity real estate. And uh, that'll sign you up for our newsletter and you'll be informed of all the things we got going on. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. I say this at the end of every show. I appreciate that so much. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe. That way you'll catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.